James 5 and verse 12. Well, there's a lot to deal with here in in just one verse, believe it or not. And we're only going to be doing one verse today, but we're going to be in our Bible the entire time. There's a lot of background to this. We've seen throughout the book of James that he again and again starts the section with the same structure. He says, brothers, brethren, it means you ladies as well, brothers and sisters. And then there's a command. And we have exactly the same structure here. Above all, my brothers, do not swear. Now, as we come into this whole thing, there's a whole bunch of things I want to say. But let me just start with some outline basics, okay? Um, Those of you who are regulars will know this, but I really don't like this habit that we have in many evangelical churches today of just memorizing and quoting single verses, we love to, we, we, we're reading through a book of the Bible, we come across a verse that we like, and we just say, oh, that's great, I'll have that, and we stick it on a coffee mug, or, you know, put it on a poster, or an Instagram post, and there it is, and woohoo, and it's a Bible verse. And we as Christians today, who call ourselves evangelical Christians, so that phrase is becoming looser and looser by the day, but those of us who claim to be people of the word, we really aren't people of the word, if we're honest. We're people of little snippets here and there. We're people of this little bit and that little bit. And so one thing I think we're going to see today is just how important it is to understand a passage in context. And we're going to come to that. Now, in almost a a superficial and jokey way of showing you that, if we were to read... If we were to read today's verse, and just the first little section, but above all, my brothers, do not swear, if we were to stop there and take that out of context, then you could have a sermon that parents of teenagers would love, and many uh, preachers would love, and that is, just don't swear. It's there in the Bible, don't swear. I heard you swearing, that was a rude word, don't swear. That's not what the passage is saying at all, as we're going to see. Not that I'm justifying that, I'm just simply saying that's not what this passage teaches. And so we need to ensure that as we look at this verse, we do so in context. Now, regulars will know, context is going to mean multiple different things. It's going to mean the context here in this section of James. It's going to mean the context within the, the, um, the, the Bible as a whole and the context in the culture and how it would have been understood What we're trying to get, whenever we look at the Bible, a bit of an overview here, but this is helpful to remind you always. What we're always trying to do when we read the Bible is understand the author's intent. The author being, in this case, James, but also the author being God. But it's the author, human and divine, that we want to understand. We do not have any right to come to the Bible and say, well, that's what it means for me. You're the tiniest of steps at that point away from this modern concept of, well, that's your truth and this is my truth and all that kind of nonsense. We need to understand what James is trying to tell us. So first of all, let's just remind ourselves of the context of James. We took quite a lot of time over this last week, so we'll only be very brief this week. 
But basically, in this section of James, from chapter 4 and on, he's encouraging us and he's, he's telling us, this, guys, is, is what happens when you fight. Do, do you fight? Are there fights amongst you? Is there quarrels? Are there, is there tension within? Why is this coming about? It's coming about because you are selfish and proud. That's the bottom line. We're selfish and proud. So somebody does something to us, and it's sinful. It's wrong. No one's saying it's okay. It's wrong. And they do something to us, and we're like, we don't like being treated that way. And what James is reminding us is, while we can't control their behavior, we, we are responsible for our own behavior. And what it is within us that is frustrated is that our desires, our needs, our goals, our wants aren't being met. And that is the basis of each and every quarrel that ever exists. And James tells us that, and it is the basis of all that he has been saying before and all that he is saying going forwards. And so he emphasizes that God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. And he goes on to point out that when we are the kind of people that are in these points of conflict, when we speak badly of other people, when we're kind of reacting and responding in these kind of ways, then what's going on here is that that we are the people who are showing our pride. We're showing our pride by saying, things should be going my way and they're not. No one should treat me this way and yet they are. That's our pride. And he goes on to even say, as we come into chapter 5, that look, if, if you have, um, if you're a person who says, well, these are my plans and this, and I'm going to do this and that, and you're not aware, you're not constantly in your mind that God can determine that, then you're being proud as well. And if you rejoice in all the good that God's given you in this life, and you, and you, you hoard it and you hang on to it and your trust is in it, then, then you are the proud one as well. And then it ends that whole section with this, with this shocking reminder that really when we're frustrated, so often what we're really doing is exposing our hatred of God. You say, well, I don't hate God, but who is sovereign? Who allowed you to get sick? Who allowed this person to treat you that way? Who allowed you to be in that circumstance? So you can't just fob it off and say, oh, I'm just frustrated with how things are going. We're Christians who believe in a sovereign God. There's not just how things are going. There's how God has ordained things. There's how God has allowed things to come about. And so often... When we are saying that we're frustrated with life, what we're really doing is saying we're not happy with how God has treated us. And James reminds us at the end there that we have condemned and murdered in the sense of hated the righteous one, that's God himself, and does he not oppose you? Because he opposes the proud. And then last week we saw that James gives us these two little commands, be patient and do not grumble. And those commands, be patient brothers and sisters, do not grumble brothers and sisters, were there to remind us that we need to patiently endure. The, the wrong response is to respond in pride. The wrong response is to respond to create conflict because we're not happy. Not happy with God, not happy with this person, not happy. And, and therefore, there is the wrong response. Don't grumble. And the right response is to just endure patiently. To trust God in the midst of trials to the extent 
that we can consider it to be a joy in trials because we know that God is sovereign over them and has ordained them for us to work out in our lives the lessons that God wants us to learn, number one of which is to stop being so darn proud and exposing that in our lives. And so that's really where we were last time. And so we have those sequence of um, those sequence of commands, and then it ends with this last command, which is intriguing to me because this this command to the brothers and sisters is kind of like separate from what's above and separate from what follows, but yet connected to them both. It's it's almost like a bridge, but. The weirdest thing about it is this above all phrase. Now, if you understand the context, and I've regurgitated a summary of it for you so it's fresh in your minds, if you understand the context, at first glance, this verse is weird. Because what he says is this, Above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Now, in one sense, that's fairly easy to understand. Don't swear on heaven, don't swear on earth, don't promise that you're going to do this. I promise, you know, I promise in the name of God, I promise upon this and that, anything in heaven, anything on earth. Now, I don't know about you, and maybe I'm just representing British culture here, but when I was young and in what you would call elementary school, I can remember that if somebody told you something, it may or may not be true, but if they were to say to you, I swear on my mother's life. Then you knew that even at like six, seven, eight years of age, that what was about to come out of their mouth was absolutely true. And if anybody, if anybody was subsequently found to have been a liar when they said that, then they might as well have just killed a puppy dog or pulled the wings off a butterfly. We know what kind of person they are. You know what I mean? I mean, that's just despicable. So... So we understand the concept of saying, I swear upon this, and, and in doing so, saying this is really true. No, 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 not just, not just true, but really, really, really true. I know I may have lied in the past, but this is really true. And even at eight years old, we understand such concepts. So that's the kind of swearing, the swearing of oath that's being spoken about. And at first glance, it seems fairly simple. James says, look, do not swear on the name of God. Do not swear on the name of your mother. That's heaven and earth. Do, do not swear anything. Just if, if, you, if, you, if you're going to do something, say you're going to do it. If you're not, say you're not. Let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. And, and be a trustworthy person. And that kind of makes sense. And there we are. And that's the sermon done. And boy, we finished early. Except there's that phrase in the verse 12 that really throws people off. And as I read through the commentaries, I see it again and again, people say, oh, this is a difficult one. Does it mean this and does it mean that? And the problem with it is this, is that the average commentator is looking through the book of James, maybe understands the flow of it generally, and, and then comes to this and says, why is this above all? How, how does this fit into the flow of James? In everything that James has been saying, hence me giving you the summarized context, in everything that he's been saying, why would he say at the end, but above all else, like all these other things that I told you about, not grumbling, being patient, the pride in your heart, the, the trusting of God, the, the, the not having conflict, all of this kind of this. But above all else, let your yes be yes and your no be no. That just doesn't fit. 
It doesn't fit at first glance. And so when, when I come and I look at this passage to try, well, as you guys who are regulars know, one of my main goals here is not simply to say, well, here's this one verse, what does it mean? But how does this fit into James? How does this fit into the flow? Why is it that James would say this above all at the end? Now, this is where the whole context thing becomes important. When we see a passage in the New Testament referencing a passage in the Old Testament, then often there's links to point us to it so that we might say, ah, yeah, I remember that passage. And so we're drawn to the Old Testament. Now, I I want this one thing to be absolutely clear, and I really need you guys to understand this. One of the justifications for this, here's a verse, take it out of context, put it over here, and, you know, forget which book it's from. Have you ever been guilty of saying, now it says in the Bible, and I know it says kind of this, I'm not sure where it is though. Everyone use that phrase, I'm not sure where it is. That's not to judge you, I've done it a few times as well. But it's just to say that if you don't know where it is, then you don't know what it means. Because you don't know its context. So, so yes, we, we don't like that taking a verse out of context. But one way that people justify that is that they say, isn't that what the New Testament writers do? There's Paul, he's writing a letter, and boom, there's a verse out of Isaiah. And boom, there's a verse out of Job. And boom, there's a verse in Exodus, and so on and so forth. Don't the biblical authors do exactly that? Just take a single verse. Well, yes and no. Yes, clearly they take a single verse, but, and this is the important bit, so pay attention. When the New Testament authors quote or allude to an Old Testament passage... And you can see that connection. They're not simply telling you that one verse. They're pointing you to that verse in its context. We are a generation of lazy Christians who have our Bibles and can pick them up at a moment's notice and look things up. You don't even need your Bible. Just go on your phone. Don't even need a Bible app. Just Google. Let's cut those words. Let's Google it. See what verse comes up. And so we we don't have that need. In generations gone by, certainly when you go back pre-printing press, Christians could only have the Bible if they literally wrote each section out by hand. You say, oh, just pop down to Staples or Office Depot, get a nice stack of paper and a few pens, and and you you go for it. Yeah, except that there wasn't an office depot and that paper cost an absolute fortune and it was more like buying a car than it was buying, you know, a stack of paper. And so, so books were precious. So what most Christians did is they memorized texts, entire passages, entire books. And in, in, the, in the case of the rabbis, the entire Bible. The apostle Paul a star student under Gamaliel when he was a rabbi, would have known the entire Old Testament, at least in Hebrew, and possibly in Greek as well, by memory. Our friend Arnold Fruchtenbaum, whose grandfather, I think it was, was an orthodox rabbi, he was used to do the nail test, where they would take the Bible, open it, um, take the, a closed Bible, take an, a hammer and a nail, and just go, boom! And see how far the nail goes through, open it up and say, okay, there we are, off you go. Recite it for me. That's how well they knew their Bibles. 
So when the New Testament author references the Old Testament, they're not simply saying, oh, here's one verse, let's pull it out of context. They're pointing us to that in the context, in the flow of context. One very important example of that is when Jesus on the cross says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And everyone's talking about the forsaking of Jesus on the basis of Psalm 22 and verse 1. But what is important for us to stand is that Jesus is pointing to Psalm 22. He's dying on the cross and can barely breathe. He isn't going to recite the whole thing. And what happens at the end of Psalm 22? The one who says, why have you forsaken me? Realizes that he hasn't been forsaken and that God will raise him up. Jesus, in that statement, is not pointing solely to the separation between the Father and the Son on the cross. He's also pointing to the assurance of the resurrection at the same time. You see why it's important? So important. You know what we're going to do now, don't you? We're going to go referencing around. So when we see this, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no. Does it sound familiar? Well, it might sound familiar to many of you, And to those in those days, it would have sounded very familiar. And the reason it sounded familiar is because Jesus had said it. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 5. As you turn to Matthew 5, just a couple of things as we come into this context. Firstly, what was written first, Matthew or James? Answer, no idea. None at all. I know scholars will argue this point, but really we don't know. One thing is very clear, that the timing was very similar. But one thing is also very clear, and that is that before any of the Gospels were written, that the sayings of Jesus were spread around orally, and other non-Gospel books were also written, and people were very familiar with the things that Jesus had said and done. Stories were being shared constantly. And so James is referring to the Sermon on the Mount, but when I say that, I'm not saying that James has a copy of Matthew in front of him, because Matthew may not have existed. But it may have done. I I, I genuinely don't know. It's it's a tight call and a difficult decision. But what is clear is that Matthew is referencing what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount that would have been well known. So when you look at Matthew 5 and verse 33, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. In other words, you've got to do what you say, as unto the Lord. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Let's just unpack that a bit. James summarizes and says, not on heaven or earth, or any other oath. Matthew's a bit more specific. Jesus here is more specific. And he's basically saying, not on heaven, because it is God's throne, not on earth because it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, which, which was a very common thing to do in Jewish culture, to swear on the basis of Jerusalem, on the promises of God, essentially. And, and the reality is, is because the earth is God's footstool, as I understand it, it means God is in control. God will ultimately bring everything he wants to pass on earth. So going back to my elementary school days, if I were to swear on my mother's life, then I've got no control over my mother's life. I've got no control over what my mother does or when she dies or when she, you know, or how she lives or anything. So, so essentially, it's the same thing. We're swearing on things that we can't guarantee. That's the issue. 
<clears throat> and so he then goes on to say, and do not take an oath by, um, by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. A couple of things just on this Matthew text so that we understand it, okay? Firstly, when he says here, do not swear on your head, you cannot make one hair white or black, obviously he didn't know about hair dyes, they, they weren't around so much in those days. No, no, that's not the point, obviously. What he's saying here is this, okay? He's simply saying, as we've already said, God is sovereign. Now do you see how that fits into the context of James a bit more? That's what James is saying here as well. God is sovereign. So you let your yes be yes and your no be no. You don't swear on things that you cannot control. Which is another theme of James, in that you are responsible for what you do. Don't put it on God. You take responsibility. I tell you, that's one of the one of the huge problems we see in the church today is that people love to blame God for their own stupidity. You know, I really feel that God's saying to me, and then they say something that's just completely unbiblical. And it's like, oh, well, if that doesn't happen now, then, you know, well, you know, it's God's fault, isn't it? You know, I can't, you've, you've passed the buck to God. Or God's told me I should do this, or God's told me I should do that. Take responsibility for your lives, people. If, if, if God's saying something to you, you know, because it's written down here. Otherwise, you haven't got a clue. Might be him, might not be him, whatever. You, you just don't know. So don't go and blame him and say, well, God said I must do this and God said it. No, 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 no. You let your, I'm going to do this or I'm not going to do it. You take responsibility. So that's going on there as well. But more than all of this, and, and, and right here at the end, this is an astonishing statement because it's going to parallel what James says about judgment. Anything more than this comes from evil. Literally in the Greek, it says the evil or the evil one. It comes from Satan. That's shocking. And what is Jesus saying then in this passage that James would reference it? Well, what's Jesus doing in the Sermon on the Mount? In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is giving an exposition of the Old Testament Mosaic law. He's teaching Mosaic law. And again and again in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, you've heard it said, but I say to you. Right? In other words, this. Jesus has said, you know the law of Moses, but you don't understand it. You have Pharisees who've taught you the law, and they've mistaught it. The Pharisees say, hey, don't commit adultery. So you think that if you're not sleeping around, you haven't committed adultery. But the Pharisees would have lustful thoughts in their heads, and not think that that was somehow wrong in any way, because they're only concerned about external appearances. And so there is God saying that you need to be pure, and that the marriage relationship is pure, and what you're doing is you're saying, well, he only said this... So I've got, a bit of, I've got a bit of wriggle room here. And Jesus is saying, no, you don't have wriggle room. The Pharisees famously took a, a part of Mosaic law where Moses spoke of divorce. And he spoke of a condition of divorce. And we won't get into all of that today. But he spoke of condition, condition of divorce being something that was kind of shamefulness or immorality. And, and that word typically meant something sexual, but not always. And so the Pharisees would say, well, it doesn't always mean that. And I mean, a wife can be shameful in all sorts of ways. 
And they kind of went through the various rabbi to rabbi to rabbi to rabbi as they did just in, in, in expanding upon the law with another law, another law, another law. And by the end of it all, they would be... And this is what the rabbi said in their writings at the time of Jesus. And you can get your Mishnah and you can look it up. And they were basically saying, well, you know, if, the, if my wife burns the toast, that's pretty shameful. So therefore it's grounds for divorce. The Pharisees were the first to introduce no-fault divorce. And so Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, no, 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 you can't do that. In other words, what he's doing throughout the Sermon on the Mount is he's saying, you've heard the law expounded to you, but, 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 you've not heard it expounded correctly. I'm going to teach you what the law really means. So we're going to have to go back another step, aren't we? We're going to have to join the dots further back and say, which part of the law is Jesus expounding upon? This is where David suddenly realizes why he was asked to read Leviticus 19. Let's turn there. Leviticus 19. <clears throat> I'm going to be there quicker than you because I had the ribbon ready. <clears throat> so as you turn there, let me just say this. It's a very well-known passage of scripture. Love your neighbor as yourself. James has referenced this chapter of scripture, this portion of scripture, at least four times and possibly more in the book of James. This is clearly the backdrop to what James is saying. So Jesus is interpreting this, and James is reminding them of Jesus' interpretation, and that will give us a better understanding of what's going on in the book of James. All right, let's look then. Um, so as we look at um, Leviticus 19 and verse 12, or verse 11, let's go back to. You shall not steal, you shall not deal falsely, you shall not lie to one another. So lying is there in verse 11. Don't lie to one another. Okay? And that, that leads quite nicely into the, the next verse, verse 12. You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. Okay. Don't swear. Not talking about bad language. It's talking about oaths. Don't swear. Don't say, I promise to do this and I promise to do that. Okay? Don't do that, and look at what it says, and swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of the Lord. Now, you can tell what the, what the Pharisees and the rabbis are going to do with a passage like this. Don't swear wrongly in the name of the Lord. And so, you know, they might swear on something different instead, you know? Why does Jesus say, don't swear on your head, don't swear on the earth, don't swear on heaven, don't swear on Jerusalem, don't swear on all these various different things, when Leviticus is only saying, don't swear on the name of the Lord? Why is that? If you know the Pharisees, you know the answer already. They say, well, we're going to tell a little fib, they need to believe it, so we're going to have to swear on something, but we can't swear on the name of Yahweh. You can't swear on his name. I know we'll swear on heaven because that sounds good. Oh, I'm a sound, maybe, that, maybe that's a, I'm not, I, I'm, I'm not convinced it's going to come true. So let's swear on something a bit less than heaven. Let's swear on something on earth. Or just put it on myself, the hairs of my head. You know, and you understand how this thing develops in the Pharisees, like they did with the divorce law. They're kind of unpacking the verse to their own convenience. And so what's Jesus doing in Matthew? What he's saying is, you've heard an interpretation of Leviticus 19 that has basically told you that if you don't say, in the name of Yahweh, 
that you can basically get away with lying. You just say it in the name of something else. And Jesus says, you've missed the entire point. Because if you swear on something in heaven, that's God's home. If you swear on earth, that's his footstool. If you swear on the hairs of your head, you've got no control over it. Just as the elementary school child's got no control over his mother's life. You've got no control over anything. Which is a relief if you're eight years old and you swore on my mother's life I didn't do it and then your mother dropped down dead the next day and you've not only got to deal with the whole mourning for your mother you've also got to deal with the fact that all your friends think you're liars now and that you're responsible which of course you're not because you had no control and we don't because we're not sovereign do you see how Leviticus 19 verse 12 that if you try and isolate it too much, you can use it as an excuse to do the very thing it's telling you not to do. Which is to think that you're sovereign, declare your oath without caution. Now I promised, I said to Jenny I wouldn't get distracted by this too much today. But some of you will know, if you've been following the Bible reading plan, you'd have recently read in Judges 11, the story of um, Jephthah. I think that's how you pronounce it, Jephthah, um, in Judges 11, who swears that, you know, the next person I see, or the next thing I see will be sacrificed, and his daughter comes out of the house, and he is obliged to sacrifice his daughter. Now, there's all sorts of ramifications there, and I'm not exegeting that passage today, but it illustrates the whole concept of an oath, how seriously it was taken, and how people were obliged to do it. The issue of Saul later in 1 Samuel, where he promises neither to eat nor drink until the battle is won. What about Deborah in Samuel chapter 1? When she promises, God, if you give me a son, here I am, I'm childless, you've closed my womb, it's the, it's the grief of my life. If you give me a son, I will give him to you. And she has a son, and so she has to deliver him. Once he's been weaned, here you go, high priest, have my son. Oaths are serious stuff. Oaths are astonishingly serious. And, and Jenny and I, as we've been doing the Bible reading plan together this year, we've noted again and again from, from, from Judges 11, just as you go into 1 Samuel and then into 2 Samuel, you just see these instances of oaths. David's oath to Jonathan, that he will look after his family, which he then proceeded to do. These oaths are serious things. And we live in a time when such things aren't taken so seriously. Now one more thing, when we're talking about, you know, not swearing in the name of the Lord. This is what it's all about when we're not taking God's name in vain. I I want us to understand this. I don't think it's okay for you to use God's name as a swear word. I'm not justifying that, okay? But there wasn't a huge problem in the days of Moses that people were going around dropping their hammer on their toe and going, oh, Yahweh. And so God had to have a command that says, do not take the Lord's name in vain. Because that's what some people seem to think it means. It doesn't mean that. The name of God is his character, his attributes, who he is. So when we misrepresent God, then we're taking the name of the Lord in vain. So when we look at Leviticus 19 and verse 12, do not swear by my name falsely, it's not simply about saying, well, you know, I promise 
on the name of Yahweh that I didn't do that. Or I promise on the name of Yahweh that I will do that. No, 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 you've missed the point. The point is, follower of Yahweh, is that if you say you're going to do something and you don't do it, you've been shown to be someone who doesn't keep your promises. Is that what your God is like then? Or have you perhaps misrepresented him? The issue here is not, and and I've said this many times, and let me just say it one more time again so you can remember it. The Bible does not contain the word abracadabra. And by that, I don't mean literally. What I mean is, is that there's no abracadabra or open sesame words. You know the story of Aladdin? He's there in front of the cave and he's like, oh, you know, open, open, open. Oh, what's the word? Open sesame. Ah, now it opens. And sometimes as Christians, we think that way. You know, well, I'm praying, I'm praying and it's not happening. Oh, I've got to pray in the name of Jesus. And so, Lord, I ask in the name of Jesus, amen. It's like a Christian abracadabra. There's no abracadabras in the Bible. When we pray in the name of Jesus, we're praying because of who Jesus is and what he has done gives us right the right to come before the throne of God as his children and make our requests known to him because he can answer our prayers and he dearly loves us. That's what it means to pray in the name of Jesus. So when we swear in the name of God... What it means is, is that we're, we're promising and the character of God is at stake. That's what it means. So, I think I'm done with Leviticus for now. So, and we can see all the other parts of Leviticus that James has been referring to. But if we shift back to Matthew, that what Jesus is then doing, I think makes a lot more sense. You shall not swear falsely but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. You see what he's quoting there? What he's saying in that statement is, the original command of the Old Testament, and we went to Leviticus, because James is always in Leviticus 19. We could have gone to Exodus, we could have gone to Numbers, there's other passages that teach the same concept. But what is being said here in in this verse, is that you don't swear falsely. Period. You just don't do it. And you perform to the Lord what you say you will do. In other words, God is let down by your unfaithfulness as much as the person you made the promise to. Do you understand that? God is let down by your unfaithfulness. That's why we need to take oaths and vows seriously. Husbands and wives, you made vows to love and forsake all others. Keep those vows. Because if you don't, you bring the name of God into disrepute. When you're baptized, you are declaring that you are Christ's publicly. Do not be unfaithful to that vow, to that oath, to that promise. And even even something which we consider to be smaller, like church membership, you know, People just like, well, you know, I'm kind of at the church. I've been there a while. I've become a member, I guess. And then, you know, somebody rubs you up the wrong way and you, you get upset about something. Oh, I see, I'm done. It's like vows and promises. They mean nothing. We even have in our church constitution the word covenant to indicate the promise that someone's making and becoming a member. We just don't stick to our word anymore. 
And it's fascinating to me that James is referencing this in the context of conflict and pride in our hearts. Because it's pride in our hearts to say, well, I promised I'd do that, but I really don't want to now. Because it doesn't suit me. We had one, you know, um, set of, I mean, I've seen people leave churches for all sorts of reasons. And one of the reasons that does come up occasionally is they just say, well, it's not so good for me. <laughs> you know, who cares? Who are you? Queen of Sheba? I mean, it's, it's just like, we don't understand sacrifice. We don't understand humility. We don't understand just working and sticking. I mean, there are great reasons, very good reasons to leave churches. But, you know, it doesn't tickle my fancy. is isn't one of them. And so we need to understand that as we, as we come to this, that what Jesus is saying is this. In summary, verse 37 of Matthew 5. Let what you, are sa- what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more comes from the evil one. You don't say, well, I promise you because of this or that or what have you. Because, because what you're doing then is you're saying, well, this is more significant than what I said previously. You can't normally trust me, but this time you really can And so, when we turn back to the book of James, and verse 12, we'll see how James uses it. But above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no. Very, very similar to what Jesus has said. So what is James doing in quoting Jesus who's quoting Leviticus? What is James doing by taking this thread? Because almost always when a new writer develops an existing thread, all you younger people know what threads are in the context of social media, when something is added to the thread, when the new writer adds it, puts, makes reference to the original again, they're always adding something new. They're always adding something new. So, what's James doing here? He references what Jesus says, so he's repeating it. Do not swear. Do not make promises that, that are on any oath at all. Exactly what Jesus says. When you say you're going to do something, do it, yes. And when, you're not, when you say you're not going to do it, then, then you don't do it. Okay? So, in, in essence, what James is saying is just a repetition of what Jesus is saying. And he's saying, don't. Don't let God down by telling lies. Be truthful. Okay? But then he says this, that you may not fall under condemnation. The word condemnation here, I don't like the ESV translation, it is literally judgment. It's the same word that was used previously. Remember in verse 9, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. You're supposed to make that connection. So the grumbling there is you don't grumble... Because then you come under judgment. Now we explained that last time. The concept there is very simple. It is that when you come into a place of conflict, not just having an all-out fight with someone, but there you are and you're not very happy and there's that, there's that frustration and that, that, that tension within you. That what's happening there is that it's exposing your sinful pride. And therefore, when you grumble, what you're doing is exposing yourself to judgment Because though you're saying, they're the problem, they did this, they did that. I'm not happy about this situation. I want things to be different. I don't like it the way it is. While you grumble, you think you're pointing at other things, but really you're pointing at your own heart, and you're showing yourself as a grumbler to be someone who is proud and selfish and isn't happy because things aren't going their way. 
That's what we understood. That was the context of judgment. Now James is making a link to that previous passage. So what he's saying is, you have to be truthful. Because if you're not truthful, you're exposing your pride and you're coming under judgment. One last little part of this puzzle to solve. That makes a whole bunch more sense. We go from Leviticus 19 through the Sermon on the Mount and we come to James and we understand a bit more about what it means. But why in the context of James, after all of these commands, all of these instructions, why does he kind of ramp it up to the end and say, but above all else, do this. And I think that what he's trying to do here, and I've wrestled with this, but I think what he's trying to do here is best understood if we first look at Ephesians. I'm not sure that James is necessarily referencing this, but I just think it's another example of the same thing, and it would help us understand. So turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. <clears throat> now, if you've got a Bible in front of you, read it as I read it. Look, look at it as I read it. If you haven't, pay close attention. I'm just going to skim through chapter 4 from verse 17, and I just want you to get the flow and the feel of it. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding, they're alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. They've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to every practice, every kind of impurity. But that is not the way that you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is, and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. That's a great passage. I love that. Right. What's he saying there? He's saying, to summarize it briefly, the Gentile unbelievers walk a certain way. They can have impurity and sin and greed and stuff in their lives, and that's just how they are. That's how they are. That's how they live. They live that way. You go to school, you go to work, you go wherever you, wherever you are, and, and you see people, and they, they don't think the things that you think are wrong are wrong. They don't think the things that you think are right are right. They've allowed themselves to become corrupt. And Paul is saying that you need to be different. And he says, assuming that you've heard about Jesus and were taught in him, because the truth is in him. Notice the word truth is in Jesus. Assuming that you know Jesus, you've been commanded to put off your old self. This old way of living. This way of living that was full of selfishness and pride. This way of living that sought after satisfying your various lusts and passions. That way of living is over. That man is dead. And now you need to live in a new way, the new self. And this new self is created after the likeness of God. Do you understand that? The way that we're supposed to live as Christians is a representation of God. Now, with that in mind, look at verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. Has Paul just completely changed topics and now he's talking about lying? No, he isn't. 
He says, therefore, it's connected. Because you put away falsehood. Where did you mention falsehood? He mentioned that the truth was in Jesus and that you need to live that truth and that the way that we live must be distinct because we're representing God. So what is the falsehood that Paul is talking about putting away? Is he talking about just about telling lies? No, 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 no. He's talking about how when you live like the Gentiles live, you're lying about who God is. That's what he's saying. Put aside that falsehood. Tell the truth to your neighbor. You know what the truth is? Here's the truth. The truth is, is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, himself God incarnate, came and became a man, and he died on the cross to pay the price for our sins. That God punished him for our sins, that we wouldn't have to endure that punishment. And he lived a righteous life, that his righteousness might be given to us as if we lived it. So that when we who have trusted in Christ look to God, then God sees not us and our sin, but Christ and his righteousness. And he declares us to be justified through that faith and that trust that we've placed in Jesus Christ. And so Christ has set us free and redeemed us from the power of sin. Hallelujah. What a great gospel, right? But if we go on living in that sin that he set us free from, then we are lying about the power of the gospel to save. We're lying. If we continue to live like non-Christians live... And we say, well, Jesus saves us from our sins. Well, what sins have you been saved for, pal? And you say, well, I'm going to go to heaven when I die because my sins are forgiven. You've not understood the gospel. Power over sin does not begin when we take our last breath. Power over sin begins when we first place our trust in Jesus. That's why James said back in chapter 2, you see how above all, finally, flow, context of James, James said back in chapter 2, he says, you know, you want to talk about faith? Show me your works. Not that we are saved by works, but the faith that saves us is justified or proven by the works. In other words, if you go, you know, you're at some Christian meeting and somebody tells you you're going to go to hell and you feel really bad and you shed a tear and someone's playing on the piano in a minor key and then there's an altar call and you come forward and you give your life to Jesus, quote unquote, and then you go away and then you continue to live life as you did before and a year later you're living as before and two years later you're living before. Might I humbly suggest that you never got saved? Because salvation gives us power over sin. Does that mean that you become perfect when you become a Christian? Lord, no. But it means that you change. The things you used to want, you don't want so much. The things of God that you weren't interested in, you start to want. There are churches up and down this land filled with bright lights, strobes, beats, bass, you know... Everything that's cool that you could possibly want. There are churches that actually will say, honestly, out front, we base ourselves on nightclubs. And they give everybody everything that they might want and what have you. But the reality is this. Is that the paraphernalia that churches give us 
sometimes shields us from the reality. Do we want the things of God? Now, don't mishear me, okay? I would love for this church to grow. I'd love for us to be able to afford to replace the mustard colours on the pews. I'd love for us to have more staff and have additional meetings and discipleship classes and, and all sorts of other things like that. I, I, I'd love, and, and I covered, hopefully in a godly sense, so much of the paraphernalia that comes with churches. But you know the one really good thing about being in a smaller church is that people come because they're thirsty and they're hungry. People come, and I know because I've spoken to many of you, and you come and you look at the pews and you go, oh boy. But you stay because you need the word. If you have gone without food and water for three days, and you think you're about to die, and somebody says, there's free water down the road, You've got hardly any strength left in you, but you know what you're going to do, don't you? You're not going to just stay and die. You're going to go down that road as far as it is to get that free water because you have to get it because you have to live. And most Christians today are so distracted by the paraphernalia of churches. They're so distracted by all these seeker-friendly additions that are put onto church that they don't even know if they're hungry or not. We're trying to build here a church for people who are hungry and thirsty for the things of God. Who just can't get by without it. Anthony, I hate your accent, but I have to hear what you say about the Bible. I really don't like the way things are done here, but I just have to hear the word. That that becomes the priority of your life. Why? Because God has changed you. And so Paul, in Ephesians 4, is saying, don't lie to people by just getting on with your life. If God has truly saved you, you're changed. You desire the things of God. And gradually, as you learn to put to death your flesh and to walk in the Spirit, your life changes and you get to, people get to see how God can overcome sin. You understand that? How God can overcome sin. And if you aren't overcoming any of your sins, what do you have to offer? And there are Christians, like at the time of Corinth, who literally brag. I could show you their websites. There's churches I drive past every week to come here who brag on the outside. We tolerate this sin. Obviously, they don't use those exact words. They just put rainbow flags out. But you get the gist. We're okay with certain sins. We want to be acceptable to people. What do you have to offer? And, and, and I think as wrong as your progressive church with a, with a rainbow banner outside the church saying, hey, come on here, we're all good, we're not going to condemn you for your sin. As much as they're wrong, those of us who condemn that sin, who say, come to Jesus and then you're going to, not be, you're going to be forgiven when you die, we're giving them only half a gospel. Because the reality is, is that whether you're called to abstinence by your sexual preferences, by your marital state, or by anything else on God's earth, the power to be pure and to walk and live a holy life in the midst 
of the, de- the, the demand for abstinence from God is something that God can give to you and you can see as a gift. Overcoming sin begins now. Back to James 5 and verse 12. Why do I think that James says above all? For this reason. He takes the long line of history from Leviticus through Matthew and says this. I've been telling you for four chapters, four and a half chapters, not to be double-minded. James says, I've been telling you for four and a half chapters to decide who you're going to follow. To decide the life that you're going to live. Are you a Christian or you're not a Christian? Because you can't be double-souled, double-minded. You can't say, well, I want to be a Christian, but I also want life to go my way. I also want to be comfortable and cozy. I'm happy to stop these sins, but this one I'm quite partial to. You, You can't live life that way. I'm happy to love people, but my idea of love doesn't include partiality. Or does include partiality. I want to keep showing partiality. You, you can't do that. We're either in or we're out. We're either going to follow Christ or we're not. And what James is saying, I believe, at the end here, is he's saying all of these things that expose our pride, that show our selfishness. And he says, at the end of the day, Jesus told you when you promise to do something, let your yes be yes and your no be no. And when he makes that connection back to the judgment of our own hearts from verse 9, I think that what James is essentially saying here is this. Are you a follower of Jesus Christ? Yes? Then let your yes be yes. Because if not, you're going to face judgment. Let your yes be yes. Don't pick and choose your Bible passages that you like and don't like. Don't live your Christian life pursuing whatever's nicest, whatever makes you feel good, whatever makes you happy. Jesus said, if you want to come after me, deny yourself. How is it that Christians still don't understand that? There's Christians that say, well, I shouldn't be treated that way. There's Christians that say, well, that's not fair. And there's Christians that say, well, you know, that, that's, kind of, that's kind of toxic. I shouldn't... You know. All this terminology to basically just say, I don't have to put up with this. What bit of deny yourself do we not understand? Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Do we, do we have any understanding of what that means? What did that mean for Jesus? The taking up of his cross meant the most excruciating physical suffering and death. And worse still, separation from God. So when we take up our cross, it could be horrendous. It could be hideous. It could be a life of misery. It could be a life of slander and misrepresentation. It could be a life of being rejected. It could be a life of physical pain and suffering. It could be all of those things that Jesus endured. But you know the one thing it isn't? It's never separation from God. Not for us, not our cross. Do we want to follow Jesus? Are we going to trust the one who died for us enough that we will live for him? Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for your word. My prayer today is simple. Lord, help us not to be half-hearted Christians. Help us not to be double-minded. If we claim your name, if we call ourselves a Christian, may we be one. May we be walking illustrations of the gospel. May we not lie about who you are, about your character, about your attributes, about your ability to save, about your faithfulness to your covenants by living a life that implies we are unsaved. Whatever you are challenging each one of us individually on in our hearts by your spirit at this moment, may we hear his voice. May we repent. And may we once again rise up to serve you faithfully. Brothers and sisters, we're going to take communion right now. So just as we stay in a moment of prayer, let's just do that. Let's just in our hearts right now, quietly before God, in the privacy of our hearts, let's repent of our desire to satisfy our desires, to not seek harm, to be comfortable, to pursue pleasurable life and how that has hindered us from being true disciples if there's any specific area that God has placed upon your heart any particular conflict that you have within you or you've caused let's put it right before God now that we might come to his table ever more aware of the forgiveness that comes in Christ. Jesus, forgive us where we haven't trusted you. Forgive us where we've placed our comfort above your glory. Forgive us where we have misrepresented your truth. And Lord, we thank you that there is forgiveness in Christ. Amen.